0: Welcome to Researching the Rainbow. I'm your host Raza. I'm a queer researcher here at the University of Kent and this podcast is for everyone who loves to explore the big queer questions in the exciting world of LGBTQ plus research. Hey everyone, with me today I've got Truda Sandberg, whose name I probably butchered, so I'm gonna ask them to introduce themselves, repeat their name, and tell us about their research and why it matters. Wow, that's a big challenge. <laughs> Let's start with names. <laughs> yeah, I'll start with
1: name. My name is Trude Sundberg, and I don't expect anyone to be able to repeat that. Uh, I'm from Norway. i lived in several different countries, starting with Norway, moving on to Costa Rica, England, China. Now I'm just stuck with... Why does my research matter and what is it even about? Well, to be honest, I've been thinking a lot about this today because I've had a lot of conversations with students that are thinking of coming to Kent and I've been talking about my research. And I feel that one of the key things I want to achieve with my research is facilitating connections and conversations. And in particular, when people come from disadvantaged backgrounds, minorities like the LGBT uh, populations and also those who really discriminate against the LGBT plus populations, how can we have conversations across and kind of from these different positions? My aim, my life goal is to try and facilitate spaces where we can have these hard conversations and where we can identify what the key problems are and try to build knowledge about them and solutions together.
0: That's a damn good answer to why it matters. I wonder if you could tell me about some of your work in perhaps more practical terms. And I know you do so much, so much that we're definitely having you back. But whether it's your work in China or India or your work with LGBT people in higher education or anything else like your querying workshops, let's start somewhere and Josh can decide how to splice it together. (laughs) That's
1: a bit mean, isn't it? I, I think where I wanna where I think about the starting point of it is coming into academia as someone who is from a minority themselves in the sense of sexual orientation, and who have I've kind of changed my gender during being in higher education, at the same time as I've changed the way and the reasons for doing research. And The reason why I'm saying that is changing your gender, change the way in which you are seen and how others see you. So in practical term, yes, you experience discrimination. Yes, you experience homophobic, transphobic language. Yes, you experience all of these different small slights at different points in your career and in your journey as an individual. And for me, that has really impacted how I do research and why Mm. I do research. And I want to say that just because I feel that my research is very much moved towards a place where I think about lived experience as Mm. key in how I do research and why I do research. And I really want to bring the people who are living in the places I'm researching and who are experiencing the problems I'm researching into the whole research process Mm. so in terms of how I do research is I work with the communities and as part of the communities and that might sound really technical but it is a huge step away from being you know a white cis male anthropologist that goes to Africa and observes black people right Mm. I don't I want to do everything I can to move away from that model of doing research and so when I've done research in India, for example, I have been brought in as a methodologist. I've been asked to become part of the project, and we're really focusing on letting the problems be defined by the people that are experiencing the problems. So I'm looking at in India water scarcity and water security, which means that we're trying to find out who's got access to clean water, how much, do they get enough mm. of the clean water, what happens to the toilet situation do you have access to toilets safely it's about you know having water inside in your house or you have to go and get water and what we've done in India in particular is to work with other gendered communities in particular because they haven't been taken into consideration at all in studies around water in most places in the mm. world but in particular in India where I'm focusing My work on that. So, we're working with those communities, Mm. letting them define and identify some of the issues and designing the research projects and Mm. the solutions with them and across groups. So, yeah, I I say that just because I think it's a recent project. But I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have done my research very differently, Mm. kind of going back to the fact that I've changed a lot since I came into academia.
0: I will definitely come back to that. But I wondered specifically around India and other gendered people and access to water. If you're there with your research, where the problems have been defined by communities whom you're researching with, what are the problems specific to those communities? What has policy and existing solutions not seen or chosen not to see? I mean, just thinking about the fact that in some of the neighborhoods that we work
1: with, you have to go out and get water. So you have to queue up Mm. to get your water. And for some minorities, queuing up to get water means that you are putting yourself at risk. Because there are certain perceptions and stereotyping and ways in which people of other genders, or even also we found an issue around religion. People from different religions are seen in a certain way and thus conflict happens in the queues. Mm. And that's one thing that I think hasn't really been discussed a lot, but that comes up as an issue. The other issue that happens in particular with other gendered communities is that in many places in India, you're not allowed to work in all kinds Mm. of jobs. And so toilets might become, if you are in sex work, for example, might become a place of work and so issues around hygiene and access to that becomes important or a source mm. of tension and also having public toilets because you might not live in a place where there are mm. public toilets is an issue. And also if you go to them, there might be violence happening because, mm. again, of the stereotyping, the stigma, the, all of the different kinds of ways in which you're seen when you're different and when you're a different gender. So I think... I mean that's a tension between that and then the knowing that a lot of the the genders that we are now seeing as, you know, the gender binary mm-hmm. are, are colonizers gender mm-hmm. identities and that there's a history of, you know, much more gender diversity in this place. But there's a tension of that in the community as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm personally dealing with the fact that I am a white northern European <laughs> coming mm-hmm. in and doing work there and then they are obviously battling with whole historical variation mm. there and the kind of internalization of the colonized way of living gender identities. How have you been received in
0: those spaces and in those communities?
1: Well, I think uh, there's an advantage of being a trans non-binary person, as in if you are... is the one of the few places where I have an advantage being, you know, how do you say, a gender variant myself, <laughs> is that... I think that there is more acceptance and more trust when you you have a common ground you so to say, I was gonna say you have a common enemy, mm. <laughs> you share experiences of of discrimination of being treated differently, and so thinking about something that's really important when I teach research methods, which is the insider outsider. Mm. kind of problem you know i have a lot of people and students that want to come and they want to be you know someone who research a community that's not their own so i have mm. a lot of people that might want to research trans communities mm. not being trans mm. themselves in which case you're an outsider looking in and i in this case i'm i have some insider traits mm. even if i am also an outsider so i'm kind of partially halfway in the
0: door mm. I think. And what work do you do with yourself as a researcher for those aspects of you that do kind of constitute you as an outsider? What can researchers do? Unless it maybe is your stance that, you know, the best research would come from someone who shares as much of their experiences and identities with those they are researching?
1: Um, so for me, what it has meant is that I've changed the way I do research. So instead of going in and doing research and going out again and being someone that defines the research and put my name down in a journal article and then I'm done with that and then I leave, I'm much more, first of all, focused on bringing the people who are living there into the research project because it's not only mine to define, I am focused on appreciating that we all have different knowledge. I might have research methods knowledge. I Mm. might have social policy knowledge. I might have, you know, political theory knowledge. Mm. But the people I'm working with in the community have all kinds of different knowledge Mm. that are equally important as my knowledge. So I'm very much focused on trying to remove those hierarchies. Mm. That's one way in which I personally think I can help undo that. And then there's a lot of reflection and questioning of myself of, am I really doing this? Or Mm. am I just reinforcing those kind of power hierarchies and how I'm operating? Mm. So I think that, and of course, if you're publishing, put the name of the people Mm. that you're working with on the journal article, see if there are other ways of output that's helpful for them. And I think in collaborative research, like how I would want to do it, even if I don't always succeed in doing it this way, will always involve going back to the communities and say, look, I'm thinking about doing this. Are you okay with that? Is that something you would be happy with? And if they say no, to be ready to accept that. It's always, you know, a consideration to think about how will this affect hmm. my community if I'm publishing this or if I'm saying this out loud, you know. Will it affect the people negatively or positively? Am I outing someone, for example? Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's probably not something you want to do. How do you use your visual material? Do you put the pictures? What will be the Mm. effects of that? There's all these kinds of ethical questions that become even stronger when you work with these kind of communities that that Mm. are marginalized. Thank you for sharing
0: that. It sounds like a lot of undoing or unpicking of power that researchers hold. Because in some ways the choice is yours. Yeah, you're choosing yeah. not to be unethical. You're choosing not to jeopardize or endanger, even if it's at detriment to your career or publication record or whatever. And there, there's still, there's still that element of the power is to some degree
1: yours. Yeah, I mean, I think you can never get away from the power you you hold mm-hmm. somehow. I I tried, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i uh I didn't apply for a promotion for many years. <laughs> you know there's this sense of okay, how do I rid myself of some of this power uh, or how do I deal with the responsibility mm. of the power because I think to my mind, if you have more power, then you also hold more responsibility
0: mm. well, that's exactly it, and ridding yourself of power was probably not always possible, especially when it's not power you've you've taken or fostered yourself but you know is afforded to us let's say based on our whiteness yeah exactly and you kind of need to just deal
1: with that (laughs) you can't give that away i think that's a lot of it's i mean when you mention careers i think it's important because i've been on another project i'm working which is on working lives for lgbt plus staff in higher education And we've had a lot of conversations around that in terms of how people from LGBT plus backgrounds, but also black and brown backgrounds, are not promoted, Mm. for example, at the same speed, in the same way as other people might be, and that certain areas might not be as appreciated to do research on, and certain ways of doing research is Mm. not appreciated. Because, of course, if you're not, you know being a machine and publishing in, in, a, in a certain way, you might not get enough publications to get you that promotion. Or if you are from a minority and you struggle in interacting with your colleagues, you struggle with doing mentorship mm-hmm. because, you know, you are experiencing homophobic language, mm-hmm. transphobic language, racist remarks and mm-hmm. racism at work. The citizenship, the being with others is, is a bit more difficult mm. and it can stop you and it can impact your mental health and it impacts you in many ways in which it doesn't, it
0: can impact your career. Yeah, absolutely it can. You know, that kind of reminds me of a conversation we had at least six or seven years ago. Um, I think I had just finished being a seminar leader for your research methods module <laughs> <laughs> and I was in your office, and I think you were done with your PhD. Yeah, and you were doing your work in China. And I I won't remember it verbatim, obviously, and might actually misrepresent what you said, just more like what I heard. And what you told me was that that was the time for you to choose what kind of academic, what kind of researcher you want to be, and then it was perhaps more through the lens of activism. But that felt like such an important conversation about choice. And what we're talking about now, and I'm reflecting those potentially seven years on, (laughs) I would need to properly count, but that feels about right, of how much choice we've had. And I wonder if I can put you on the spot and tell me if I can't or shouldn't, but how much choice have you had to be the researcher and academic that you want to be even if what you want has changed which is brilliant but you know how much of that has been in your hands well i think okay so this is a really good
1: question just because i still see myself as an activist academic as someone who builds in activism into what i do as a scholar as as someone who teaches as someone who does research i feel like it's part of everything i do so what i i think how i found it is that Very early on in my career, during my PhD, I definitely had much less power to define how I do research. And then I was caught up in this, okay, I need to do it this way, the first couple of years afterwards. Because you get caught into a narrative, you get caught into a way of doing academia, a way of researching, a way of teaching, a way of things should be done in a certain way. And then I just found out, actually, no, actually I can change it. I don't have to do research in this way. I don't have to publish in that way. But that doesn't, it does come as the cost, right? I had <laughs> recently, I have a friend who's, who's, <laughs> who's very dear to me, but says some things that I deeply disagree with. Uh, just as an example of the kind of, Comments you might get if you do research differently, if you do interdisciplinary research, if you do research that includes, you know, community driven research that's more about different kinds of outputs. Someone told me I I do public engagement. So I don't do research, I do public engagement because I work with the communities, I do different outputs and all of that, and that's public engagement. And I've had a lot of conversations with other academics that do collaborative research do community driven research who's often felt they haven't been taken seriously Mm. as academics because you're not doing it in the traditional way and I think what I've learned over these years is that you need to have a kind of a conviction Mm -hmm. (laughs) of why you're doing things in the way you do and why this way of doing it is right for you you do have a choice but I'm not going to say it doesn't come at a cost you know it
0: must come at a benefit too of seeing things differently, right? Or allowing yourself to break out of those boxes of what's in inverted commas proper research or most rigorous research or whatever other nonsense labels we put to it. I, I don't want to turn us into producing silver linings, but I wonder what's on the other side of that coin. Well, what I mean, have you gained?
1: Well, I I've gained a lot of things. I mean, for me.
0: What working with
1: and in communities brought me is a lot of really exciting projects, amazing communities, lifelong friends, outputs and groups and spaces created that I couldn't even imagine. You know, you were mentioning the queering workshops and we had one, was it in Maine, the queering freedom? Anyway, this space that we created where we can talk about freedom From all of these different points of view, you know, as freedom from Islamophobia, freedom from discrimination, freedom from trauma, and how we can heal our communities, you know, to be able to create these spaces and be part of creating these spaces just is a huge source of Mm -hmm. happiness for me. And I feel really lucky because I've been and I continue to be part of these communities Mm -hmm. in China, here, here in India and elsewhere. And I also feel very grateful that people let me into these spaces. Mm.
0: But you create that space for others too, like the querying workshops. And I've been to one of those. I really can't wait to go to more. Tell our audience, what are these workshops about?
1: I think what they are for me are spaces where people can come and really engage with some of those big concepts that, at least when it comes to the first one, querying freedom, has become these huge terms of contested territory uh, lately. And I think it's what we want to do with the querying workshops is to kind of curiously and creatively create have spaces where we can think about, well, what does that actually mean to us? What does it mean and how can we engage with it? What does it mean in my daily life? And what does it mean for others who are living at the margins, who are experiencing discriminations or suffering or difficulties due to their background, due to their positionality. And with the queering freedom, we just really wanted to open up a space to think about freedom differently, to be defined by marginalized communities, because freedom of speech the last few years now has very much been defined by a majority of white, cisgendered people have an agenda with freedom of speech, where freedom of speech is about being able to say things that have a negative impact on other populations. And we wanted to take that and redefine it and think about what does it mean to be free? Especially, what does it mean to be free if you're living at the margins? For me, it would be, what does it mean to be free as a trans non-binary person who experiences... You know, small comments misgendering every day or, you know, things happen on a daily basis and you kind of need to hold it. Mm. And what would it mean to be free for me? That was one of the prompts. And what we want to do with the workshops is also to bring in practitioners, bring in artists and art, bringing different ways of engaging with the world around us to kind of engage with these concepts differently Mm. from a different point of view. And free up some of the tension and conflict and, you know, difficult relationships that are attached to that. Mm. So we did queering freedom, queering the channel. which The channel has a lot of perceptions that come with it. Mm. Crossing the channel, refugees, asylum seekers, Mm. war, swimming the channel, charity, fundraising. There's so many things that is attached to the channel. But the channel and water also divides us. It creates divisions. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to kind of think of how can we engage with this? What does it mean to me? And to use creative methods and to open up spaces to engage with what is around us is what we're hoping to
0: continue doing. And I can't wait to attend more. <laughs> so I went to the Freedom One and I went online because that one was the online event. And I'll admit on record that since the pandemic and online events, I have always multitasked. You know, I've attended the conference while doing emails and I started in the same way. Within five minutes, I down tools and thought, this matters, this I listen to. I still remember struggling with the answer of when I feel freedom. And my freedom coming through anger, which I've never stopped to consider in that way. That stayed with me. So I think it's very powerful when you talk about spaces that you've been allowed to be part of or invited into, but you're creating those spaces too. And not all research does. If you do an interview and hang up the phone or, you know, switch of Zoom and that is all. That's not community. What really comes through this is having communities create their own answers, you know, rather than a researcher going away, analysing and coming up with the answers themselves. Which brings me back to your work in India and access to water and other gendered communities. What I remember is that in one of my questions, I said other gendered people. Mm -hmm. You responded saying communities. Not, not kind of in contradiction to what I said, but in, in your own language and in your own answer. And that made me wonder again about power and positivity and in really violent and difficult circumstances. And the fact that we spoke about other gendered communities defining problems around water access, but also solutions. So what solutions have you seen if that work has reached that point? I don't even know what words to use, whether it's strength or capability or what, but community carries connotations, right? Of care, of belonging. So as well as all those tremendous challenges that you've described, is there something on the flip side? Something really special that binds people in those communities? I guess when I use the word communities and groups,
1: I'm trying to counter the feeling of being isolated Mm. that come with people and you focus on individuals. And because of that, I want to think about communities in a positive way. I want us to think that we are part of something. We are part of something that's larger than just me as an individual. Because I feel like one of the worst things when you are in a minority or if you're living in the margins and you've had traumatic experiences is to feel isolated, to not feel like you have anyone else, that no one can help you, there's nothing else. And I think, for me, community can be quite conformistic and oppressive. (laughs) Mm. But if it's defined by people within the community and if it's built together together, I think the community can be amazing. It's got great potential. And I really feel that hope and hopefulness is really important. And in particular, as we see the economy is crashing, political polarization with, you know, right wing mm. extremism, we see a lot of things that can feel really difficult for people who are in minorities or being minoritized more accurately. To know that we are not alone is really important, but I don't want to be like, it gets better. Mm. <laughs> because yeah, be like, The eh. evidence is to the contrary. <laughs> yes, there's not, so, but I feel like what I really want to do is to open up those spaces and to be be part of that. And I'm getting to the thing about, you know, the community knowing mm. the solutions because something I'm and wanting more training in is restorative justice and ways in which we can have groups of people and identify, you know, the ways that are already there in solving problems. Because I think as humans, you know, there are some mm-hmm. things we have there that can be used and they're often quite locally based, right? Yeah. so. I think with colonialism and capitalism, we have decided that there is a set of ways of doing things, like democracy mm. and yeah, capitalism, that this is the way we have to do everything. And we kind of stopped appreciating that there are other ways of solving conflict or ruling oneself that might work better, or maybe you need to adapt it. Mm. Maybe you need to find different ways of doing something or solving something in a community yeah, what I want to do and, and what I hope to do more is to work with groups of people in different places, mm. like in Kolkata, where people can define that themselves, can find those mechanisms or entry points into to solving issues, identifying mm. issues. Because I'm not going to know, as someone from, you know, the north of Europe, what the best way of solving a conflict in Kolkata is. Mm. It's not... Why Why would I think I know that?
0: <laughs> you know, of course. I guess what that made me think about as well is lived experiences of stigma, as that being another strand of your work and plurality of experience, along the fact that there's no such unified thing as stigma. There's so much of a different lens or a different viewpoint that you bring to your work that I've wondered... You know, I come from a background in psychology, psychology deals plenty in stigma, and I'm not saying well, I'm just saying there's, you know, plenty of research on stigma from psychology. There's, you know, sociological takes on stigma. I wondered where you locate yourself in terms of disciplines, if anywhere, and what your work on stigma brings to the table.
1: I'm definitely not a psychologist. So my background, actually, my background is I started out with an undergraduate degree that focused mostly on political theory and political science. I did political psychology. I'm saying that just because I'm thinking about how I see stigma. I did my PhD on attitudes towards those in need, attitudes towards immigrants. You know, how other people see those who are in vulnerable groups has always been a focus of, of my research. So I've always been really interested in how certain groups are seen and the negative perceptions, the stereotyping and what is going on there. I've increasingly become interested in the relationship between that, what creates certain perceptions of vulnerable people or people at the margins, what explains that, Mm. which I think adds to psychology because psychology tends to focus very nicely on one person So I'm very interested in in looking at in what settings do we see what kinds of negative views of Mm. marginalized people. I think the other part of it is something that I have realized with my own gender journey is how you internalize shame, Mm. how you internalize negative views of stereotypes. And I think one of the most powerful experiences I've had over the last two years is to deal with my own internalized transphobia It is like self-hatred, right? Mm. And it's really difficult. And definitely, I need someone to be my psychologist about that, and I have had that. But, you know, I think in terms of my research, what I've moved to appreciate is not only what explains stigma from an attitudinal Mm. point of view, but also the fact that certain stigma and certain negative perceptions impacts groups it impacts individuals and we internalize how we see ourselves and then what do you do do? what do you do with traumatized marginal communities communities that have experienced the effects of stigma through racism through discriminations how can we heal these communities you know how can we work in community to think about that and i feel like My focus on communities and connection and facilitating spaces comes out of the fact that I realize that all of these things are connected. Mm. In terms of my research, I'm probably a social policy scholar just because it's an interdisciplinary Mm -hmm. (laughs) field. But I do really see how politics, policy, people's way of Mm -hmm. treating other people, all of these factors together Shape how we see others, but it also affects how we see ourselves and how we mm. see our own group. And I've always been interested in, you know, what brings us together and what keeps us apart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's always been a key, key topic since I was an undergraduate student because I, I was fascinated by that as an antisocial introvert. <laughs> 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 like, why do these people talk to each other i do not understand
0: (laughs) well every researcher has a starting point right of of some sort of experienced alienation when when you observe rather than actively experience Mm -hmm. or maybe that's too much of a generalization but it's nice to hear your origin story i'm still trying to locate my own but it's it's bound to have some sort of a sense of alienation
1: i mean this is probably proof of my own childhood trauma but i used to go And sit in trees where no one can see me, and I would observe people from my Mm -hmm. tree, and it was like my spaceship. And I would just look at other people and look at what they were doing. And I'm like, that's weird. I'm really safe and nice here. (laughs) Like this is a safe place. (laughs) I'm just gonna. I would sit there for a day.
0: And, and your research is almost diametrically opposed to mm-hmm. that of of an observer in a tree. It's very participative and it's very questioning of the usual power dynamics. Preparing for this, I went on your profile. I read a couple of sentences on holders and receivers of attitude and felt to me almost binarized. And I kind of thought, that's not the you I know, which means I'm not reading it right.
1: Yeah, I think maybe I need to rewrite that sentence. That was not
0: a diss. (laughs) And actually, look, if if it gets people asking questions, (laughs) surely you need to leave it rather than do anything with it. Yeah,
1: I mean, of course, I don't mean it as if there is one holder and Mm. one receiver, because we all hold and receive in the sense that we all have attitudes and we all receive someone's reactions that come out of an attitude they have. So we all have both of those. What is meant goes back to the experience of discrimination, the experience of being treated in a way that can impact you negative coming mm. out of other people's negative attitudes. So let's say when I was doing work on people's attitudes of welfare claimants, mm. a lot of people have negative attitudes towards those who are on benefits and will say so. And that's a very clear mm. division. But what you also will find is that Amongst those claiming benefits, there is an internalization, there is shame, there is stigma, right, mm. and so you can hold a lot of different kinds of attitudes and yeah. you can receive benefits and you can judge others on benefit that yeah,
0: often happens and equally, you can be the person who judges from the outside, and when your own situation changes, you've internalized that so much, and I've heard it from my own research participants so many times saying, well, we're not the type of people who claim or ask for support, or there's so much shame that people will go without even when they are entitled to support and it's available, and when the hell is it anymore? But even in those cases, it seems that the perpetrator of that attitude of stigma, again, maybe be a bad choice of wording on my part, becomes also the holder of it, where should the circumstances change, they will deprive themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where I'm coming from when i wanting to to create spaces where we can also reflect. So with the mm-hmm. Queering Workshop, what we want to have are you know, reflective spaces where there is space to admit. Like when I was saying that I have internalized transphobia as someone who identifies as trans non-binary, I, I had that myself. And to mm-hmm. be able to talk about that and process that together with other people and say it out loud, means that you need to have a space where that is okay, where you can feel safe to do that. And I think that's a challenge that we have as a society at the larger scale too. How can we have that? Because there is a lot of conflict. A lot of things are said without bad intentions. (laughs) But the impact of what they are saying are quite negative. And how can we change that around? Because I feel that with, with misgendering, most of the time people misgender me, not out of a bad intention, but this how do I then create or we create a space where I can say, look, like, can you change it? Or someone else can say it mm-hmm. without that other person then feeling uncomfortable, without me having to take responsibility mm-hmm. for their discomfort. Yeah. You know, there's so much discomfort there. And I feel like, there needs to be more thinking of how we can create these spaces for discomfort,
0: for the uncomfortable, so that we can move past it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, still, it makes for quite a vulnerable and exposing space for you, right? And that's both the joy of doing research in spaces that hit home so much, but also the Challenge and the pain of it, right?
1: When I was thinking about what I was going to say today, that's part of what I wanted to say is that being completely out, or I don't think you can be completely out, being as out as possible (laughs) as I am, and to do work on my own communities and to learn about some of the terrible things that happen Mm -hmm. in my own communities to people in my community, to myself, to other people, it can be really exhausting. And someone once said to me, Trude, should you do this research? Because I feel often when you're in a community, you feel like you need to do something to help Mm -hmm. your community, even if you are not actually emotionally prepared to do that, Mm -hmm. because it is exhausting, I've been doing this research project on LGBT stuff in higher Mm. education's working life. And because it's my own working life, it's been really, it's been tough emotionally to do because I'm reading all these stories and they resonate, you know, it's my Mm. work
0: environment. And And there's no hiding, right? Because you can minimize your own, you can put up all sorts of defenses, but to really hear your participant, that can break the floodgate open.
1: Yeah, it's really tough. So what I've realized is that in that project, I have two two main colleagues, one colleague at Essex and one in Sussex. And we have these regular meetings, which is about the project, but most of the time or a lot of the times, it's about venting, mm. <laughs> talking about some of the findings and just this is this is terrible, or this really triggered me, or you know what happened through the, you know, mm-hmm. or I tell someone else it's like a space for okay we need to get it out mm-hmm. somewhere and I think that's actually become part of the research project mm-hmm. that we need that we need to be able to just get it out of our system say that in terms of it's emotionally tolling because I think increasingly want people to be very aware that doing research can be really tiring mm-hmm and really exhausting and we might not be ready for it i didn't do research on my own communities until i was longer into my career because i don't think i would have been able to without completely breaking down earlier on because it is tough you need to have the tools to take care of yourself you will break down a little bit and then come back up you know it's it's tough It's something we don't talk about too much as researcher: is the toll it can take on you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, ironic that it can exhaust you to try and do to do research on your community that you want to do for social change. Everything that matters
0: carries its risks, doesn't it?
1: Yep. Because I was writing this chapter for a book on being the other gendered sociologist. <laughs> I started writing this very sad story about exhaustion. (laughs) And I was thinking, do I really want to tell people that this is like a a possible outcome of you doing research on this? (laughs) It's not very optimistic, is it? But it is. But it's true. It's a
0: reality, yeah. And for people who may want more, even if they're not ready to research or that's not their thing anyway, but they want to hear, see, read more of your work, What's next for you for querying? What's next for your research? And um, where can people find your work? You can find me on the
1: website for the University mm-hmm. of Kent's SSPSSR school, which you can put underneath <laughs> because it's very long. We have websites for some of the work I'm doing in India. We have a website there. We have a website for the LGBT plus staff working lives in higher education. So I can provide that in there. In a link underneath the podcast and in terms of where next more querying workshops. Mm -hmm. I'm finishing up a chapter that hopefully gonna be in a book about gender and research in sociology, which is a handbook. I'm also writing up an article on queer grief. Mm. which is a very therapeutic <laughs> topic. We're finishing up the report for the LGBT Working Lives project. Yeah, I'm submitting a book manuscript that hopefully mm. will be submitted. Yeah, there's a lot happening. Basically. Certainly is. <laughs> I so... always have a lot of things happening, and uh, so I can just provide links.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Twenty doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I, I was going to ask just, finishing and saying how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I was going to ask for some finishing thoughts that maybe carried hope, but you know what? (laughs) If I've learned anything today, is that this is not my space to control. (laughs) So I'll leave the last word for you in whatever way you want, whatever you want to say, whether it's research, not research, it doesn't matter. I'll just say before that how much I genuinely enjoyed this conversation and how much I expect to have you back, given just how much queer related research you're doing i mean everything about me is queer Russell.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think i feel that for me saying something hopeful a lot of what we talked about today is about creating spaces to be create spaces where we can feel safe enough to be vulnerable and connect with each other and how can we do research that enables that, and that is part of creating that? Those are the, the elements that I feel are really important to me as a social researcher. And also elements that I feel are important to, to work towards social justice. Because we cannot have social justice if we can't talk to each other, if we can't talk about difficult things. And this might be a big question, but why should I do this research? It's a question that I often ask myself, and it sounds really simple, but it depends on where you put the intonation mm. in it. Because as someone who is from the global north, I like to emphasize, I, Why should I mm. do this research when there are so many other people that could have done this research that are much better placed for me or are locally placed mm. and have the knowledge there and where... You know, the knowledge produced will stay in that place. And why am I doing this? To what end, right? Mm. Why does it matter? Who am I doing it for? Is it just for my own joy or promotion and career? And it's fine if it is. But I feel like these kind of very simple questions, if we ask ourselves that, are quite revelatory. I don't know if I have a catchy ending, but I feel like... Yeah, everything about me is queer. I used to say everything about me is Q because I was a direct Q. The Q <laughs> yeah. Center, which is a center for quantitative teaching, and yeah. part of Q Space in Beijing, which is a queer feminist makerspace. You know, all the kinds of institute that come mm. up with starts with Q. Unfortunately, the institute i will be part of in Kolkata does not have a Q in it. You know, my lifeline is like gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do. Try to
0: persuade (laughs) them to change the name. So yeah, that's where we're at. That's a really good thing to finish on. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm really warm now.
1: Can we open the
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow our wonderful guests to find out more about their work. And if you love this, just you wait till you hear the next one. Make sure you share and subscribe and join us next time for more Big Queer Questions here on Researching the Rainbow.